one of the things that when I talk to people and I counsel them and they want to know about real estate investing, I said, the first thing you need to do is take a CCIM course. You know, I'm their biggest cheerleader just because of the knowledge. And I said, it's going to put it into perspective for you of, you know, you see a, an eight plex and you're thinking, well, I'll just buy that. Well, really? Based mm-hmm. on what? You know, what is the market fair? And what will you stand to achieve by doing it? What's the ultimate return on investment? Hello, everyone. Welcome to the fourth season of Ready to Scale. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. Real estate investing is not rocket science, but it's not a fairy tale either. It's an incredible investment vehicle that builds and grows wealth. I have done it, and this is why so many of the wealthiest people in America and in the world, actually, invest in real estate as well. Listen in every week to learn about all the different real estate asset classes, which strategies experienced and successful investors use to live their best lives and the processes to do it. Don't reinvent the wheel. Just listen in every week to grow your knowledge along with me and to move your finances to a place where you can live an extraordinary life. This show is sponsored by my company, Blue Lake Capital, where we help passive investors grow their wealth through large multifamily investments and funds. To learn more about my company and invest in with me, visit www.bluelake-capital.com. Welcome to Ready to Scale Season 4. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Ready to Scale. I'm Ellie Perlman, your host broadcasting from Rhode Island. Today, I have a very special guest, Arlene Duncan Post. So she has an incredible story. So she, you know, her career begun with Dean Witter, Reynolds, and American stock brokerage and securities firm. But the interesting part about Arlene is that upon the you know abrupt death of her husband in 1996, she basically was thrown into the world of commercial real estate development, knowing nothing about it. And she became a very, very successful real estate investor. For instance, you know, she led an $8 million multifamily project and developed over 300 acres of mixed use among other very successful projects. So it's something that I would love to, you know, kind of hear more about, and we're definitely going to get into that conversation. Today, Arlene, she's currently the vice president of Venturian Career Management, where she specializes in executive career management strategies since 2012. And another fun fact is that she's also the founder of Women and Wine on Wednesday. Arlene, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. Yeah, absolutely. So you have a fascinating story and I, you know, want maybe to start there. And I touched a little bit on what happened in 1996. If you can tell me a little bit more about it, I'm really curious to hear, you know, how you felt, what happened and what brought you to where you are today? So I was a stockbroker in operations at Dean Witter and admin support. And my husband was a commercial real estate developer. He had his own shop. And for years, we ran and played and just had the best time. And the only adventure we had not tackled was parenthood. And the day I had our daughter, I did not go back to work. And I was talking to my husband about that. I said, you know, I've worked since I was basically 11. 
And one of these days, I'm going to have to go back to work. And he said, look, this is a one shot deal, you know, to have to be a uh, stay at home mom. And so he said, when, you know, when she goes to school, you can come and help me and figure it out from there. And I said, okay. So that was 1996. We had her first birthday. And four months later, he died one morning. And so he and his business partners had bought about 300 acres on the northeast side of town to develop. And my husband was supposed to be the sweat equity partner and put it all together because he had all the relationships. And so his business partners came to me and said, we want you to do it. I said, guys, I don't know how to do this. Okay. You know, I can figure bond yield. I can put portfolios together, but I don't know how to do this. And they said, well, we'll teach you. And I said, well, but you live in Omaha. How are you going to do that? And they said, Arlene, we've known you for a long time and we trust you. And, you know, we want you to run this. And I'm like, okay. So I didn't know anything about it. Had no clue and checked into real estate school. Didn't have to because I was a principal, but I didn't know the language. I didn't know the terms. I didn't know anything. And thank goodness that my husband was so well-liked by his colleagues that when I would make a phone call, people would take my phone call. And so I went to the engineers and I said, I need engineering 101 right now. The architects, how to maneuver in the city government to pull permits. What are the steps? And it was all of these giant pieces that had to be put together. And I didn't know how to do it. So I just jumped in with both feet and started doing it. And my partners in Omaha, they're just stellar people. And I had partners all over the country who specialized in certain like multifamily, flex space, manufactured housing, things of that nature. And so I got to learn at the knee of some really great people. And so with the acreage and everything, we tried to figure out what would be the highest, best use, whether it be retail, flex space, multifamily, and the manufactured housing community that we put together, I think was the last one in the city of San Antonio. In fact, the city councilman said there will never be another one like this. And he meant it. And so just a various different product mixes. You know, when people think of real estate, to me, that, you know, they think of single family, you know, because you're going to sell houses. But the real estate umbrella is enormous and it has right. some different little threads underneath it. And I think I've done pretty much a bunch of them through the years. And being a project manager, being a construction manager, I mean, I didn't know how to do any of that stuff, but it was truly on-the-job training. And I was delivering single-family lots to single-family home builders, and I couldn't deliver them fast enough. And this was in probably 05 and 06. And in retrospect, if I had looked back and seen, you know, what was building up, you know, we would have probably gone a different direction. But then I, you know, sold the last one and I was done and I'm like, okay, now what am I going to do? I uh, had to reinvent myself and I hadn't had to look for a job in 25 years. And I ended up applying online, going into the black hole that is, and, you know, banging my head against the wall for a couple of years. And I saw, I was reading the paper one Sunday morning, drinking coffee. And I saw this little ad that said, Venturian Career Management, your guides to a changing workplace. And I thought, huh, I wonder what that's all about. So I called on and I started talking to him. And it is a non-traditional, disruptive, strategic process that is not conventional, and it works, and it consistently works. And so I got to segue and use all of my experiences to help other people 
find their dream job? You know, what does it look like? How do you go about doing it? Do you just apply online and hope for the best? Well, hope is not a strategy. Okay. (laughs) That's true. That's very true. And so, you know, when my daughter was about 13 and I had to reinvent myself and I I said, you know what, honey, in about four or five years, you're going to be gone. And I'm going to be standing here looking at the dogs. And so mom had a life before you and mom's going to go get her life back. And that's kind of what I did. I was a young widow. I was, you know, 37 years old. That's very young. Yes. And I live in an old neighborhood with lots of older people, the original homeowners. And ironically, through the years, I've been able to mentor them when they've lost mm. their husbands too. So it's, it's kind of a weird roundabout way, but that's where we are today. That's incredible. There's so many incredible things in in the story that you just told, I mean, becoming a widow at the age of 37, it's, I can't even wrap my head around it, how challenging that is, how unexpected that was, which probably made it a lot harder to cope with. And Well, and I had no experience in how to be a single mom, much mm-hmm. less, you know, yeah. what to do. My parents had both been married for, you know, forever to each other and yeah. my sisters forever. So there was no basis for me to, to go by. And I told my daughter from the very beginning, I said, honey, you know, you didn't come with a book or a manual Mm. and and mama, we're just going to do this on a daily basis. And we're just going to work through it. And she's 26 today. So, you know, something worked. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And I, I really want to talk to you about how you learned everything, how you, you know, how you handled an incredible learning curve when we get to the process part. But I want to start a little bit, you know, with kind of take a step backwards and talk about the asset part of your career. You've done a lot, retail, multifamily, single family homes. Which one is your favorite asset class and which one was the most profitable for you? Probably multifamily. You know, we built a 192-unit apartment complex, and I was responsible for making sure everything, you know, got put together. And then I had to do the the checklist on each building, and the contractors did not like me very much because I would walk around with a roll of blue tape, and I'm like, this needs to be fixed. And because I wouldn't sign off on it, which means nobody got paid until that all came about. I think the apartment complex was probably the most profitable. The most challenging was probably the manufactured housing community. It was in the state of Texas, manufactured homes are considered chattel unless they are permanently fixed to a foundation. So there was a lot of things that had to go into the financing and the purchases of the homes. Plus, you know, I did the clubhouse, the pool area, all of the streets. I drove through there not too long ago and all the little trees that were planted are now giant oaks. And <laughs> so it's it's really rewarding. And I told a friend of mine who was with me, I said, this is why people build things is because you get to see the fruit of your labor eventually of what that is. Yeah, that could be very satisfying. That's why it's also called real estate. It's, it's real. You build it. You see it, you feel it. It's it's very very satisfying. It's a bit different than buying an already existing building, improved operations. Maybe you know if you renovate the exterior and the interior, you have something to be proud of. But it's a whole nother level when you just when there was dirt, 
and then there's an entire building. It's it's a different feeling of accomplishment. It really is. It really is. I remember too that there was a clause in the city code about manufactured housing. And we had grandfathered rights that were soon to expire. And since I was the person on the ground, I had to show proof of turning dirt before the expiration of those grandfathered rights. So, you know, working under a time constraint, making sure that, you know, there were no yellow-cheeked warblers on the property or, you know, anything that was going to get in the way of moving that dirt. And it's just persistence, finding ways around. In a program, basically, you have lots of different projects going on. And that's what we had going on at the same time, flex space. And we did some storage units also. The people who ran it were living on site. So that was in the early 2000s. So that was a very profitable business. Ended up doing some site selection across the Southeast for one of our contractors. And that was a lot of fun too. But like I said, you know, you've looked at my bio, I've done a little bit of everything. And one of the things that I think was most valuable in my vertical learning curve had to do with taking CCIM classes. CCIM is the Certified Commercial Investment Member Designation. It's like the PhD of commercial real estate. And there were four classes and I took them and it was like someone opened up a whole new world of understanding. It was the finance part. It was the negotiation part. It was all the components that go into assessing a potential investment and to see what the ultimate rate of return of expectation and money was going to be. So that's basically one of the tools that you've used to help you take over your late husband's company and to learn basically how to become a real estate investor, how to execute it. You could have, you know, nobody probably asked you to do it or required that you that you do it, but I'm assuming that that was something that you took the initiative as you know, you understood that that was a good tool to help you flatten the learning curve, which that could be a very painful process. You know, a lot of people would live in denial. You know, the stages of grief mm-hmm. are not linear. So denial is one of them and it, it can pop up at any time. I just felt like failure was not an option. I didn't have that, that luxury of, you know, going and hiding in the closet, you know, and just saying, I can't do it. The classes I took, and I'm a lifelong learner anyway, I'm constantly reading and wanting to acquire more knowledge about a lot of different things. And when I took the CCIM classes, it really showed me how little I knew Mm. because my business partners too were, one was a CPA, two or three of them were real estate developers for a long period of time. One of them was an architect. So, you know, I got a mix of everything, but those classes and the knowledge base really brought it all together and showed one of the things that when I talk to people and I counsel them and they want to know about real estate investing, I said, first thing you need to do is take a CCIM course. You know, I'm their biggest cheerleader just because of the knowledge. And I said, it's going to put it into perspective for you of, you know, you see an eightplex and you're thinking, well, I'll just buy that. Well, really? Based on what, you know, what is the market bear and what will you stand to achieve by doing it? What's the ultimate return on investment? And one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is making real estate investment more tangible to more people. A lot of times accredited investors are the tip of the iceberg. 
And if anything that Robin Hood and the Reddit army has taught us about trading and about how to move away from conventional, traditional ways of doing things is to make real estate investing more tangible. And I don't mean things like Lifestyles Unlimited. I mean, that's fine, but that's subscription-based. But to actually make it to where people can, with a little bit of money, get into it and create a, a secondary income stream. Yeah. And there are websites out there that allow investors to invest with different sponsors. And I believe the minimum investments are significantly lower than, you know, than normal. But I don't know if I believe that some of them are only open to accredited investors, but a lot of those opportunities are still not open to non-accredited investors. And there's always, and there are always talks, you know, I'm hearing rumors that the SEC is supposed to change the test because the fact that you have a million dollars net worth or you're making $300,000 a year if you're married and filing jointly, that means that you don't need the protection of the SEC and that you are accredited and smart enough to make your own decisions. People with more money are not necessarily smarter than people with less money. So I believe it should be a knowledge base that could stay, but you need to add another layer where, you know, if someone took the CCAM, you know, course, or if someone is passing a certain test to show that they have the knowledge, they're knowledgeable enough to look at an investment memo and make an informed decision whether they wanted to invest their fifty, twenty-five, hundred thousand dollars, even if they don't have a million dollars in net worth, because we're basically saying if you're a millionaire, you can invest. But in order to get there, you also need to invest your money somehow. So it's kind of the chicken and the egg. And I hope that the definition of accredited investors is going to expand and and change, you know, today. Living in Texas for all my life too, it's only been in the recent history that you could borrow against the equity in your home because yeah. forever it was the widows and orphans protection plan, you know, mm-hmm. to keep the carpetbaggers from taking advantage of, of people. And this, you know, Texas has a lot of, you know, good things and it has a lot of bumps and warts too. But that was one of the things that when that passed and you could borrow against the equity in your home, it opened up a whole new door for a lot of people. Yeah. That's, and you're referring to the HELOC. Yes. Yeah, that's a, a wonderful tool that basically allows homeowners to take a loan to purchase an investment property against the equity in their home. And I remember when I started investing in real estate, I actually looked into it and learned a lot about it because I said, you know, I thought to myself, I need some money to get started, but I don't have cash. So what do I do? And that was one of the things that I learned about. Of course, when you Google how to invest in real estate, if you don't have you know, with zero money down or without, you know, any money, that's one of the ways how you can actually get started. And that's, that's an interesting tool. But I think, you know, you should definitely make sure you're aware of the disadvantages as well, because it could be risky if you don't know what you're doing. Sure. Absolutely. I have a girlfriend who is, she's a real estate broker, and she and her husband started buying up houses and before the inventory disappeared, and then they would rehab them and sell them and use that money to do it more, to buy more houses. Well, the whole concept is fabulous because like you said, you have to start someplace. And so they took the proceeds from their first sale and invested that. 
But now we're looking at a severe problem as far as inventory is concerned of existing homes. And in my little neighborhood here, it, my little house, it was under $100,000 years ago. And now it's escalated on like 300%. But the inventory has disappeared. And the other problem is supply chain. That has really messed things up too, where the cost of construction for new construction at one time was 125 to maybe 150. And it's north of 200 now. And so it is really hard to justify. And you know, the more things cost, the skinnier the profit margin. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's a good segue to the strategy part of our conversation about foreseeing the next, you know, crush. And before we started recording, you know, we chatted a little bit about how you, so you basically sold a big portion of your portfolio right before 2007. So I'm really curious to hear what went through your mind when you've done that. It, was it a coincidence? Was it something plain that you basically looked at what was happening back then and realized that something is wrong? And should we be worried about what's happening now with the very, very tight, you know, supply in the market? Sure. If I remember right, it's been a long time, but if I remember right, this 300 acres was part of the RTC that came about after the savings and loan implosion. And so there were several parcels of land about, and they bought, it was in two, two different pieces. And the larger one, we did the manufactured housing community. And eventually sold it to another developer who expanded it into the rest of the property. We had looked at selling the hard corners for retail. And it just became, I think, you know, my business partners, they had other fish to fry in other places and other investments. And this one just kept hanging around. So it was time to liquidate as much as possible. And so that's what we did. And the single family homes, you know, that was in big demand. And there was an elementary school across the street, which really made it in demand. So when it was all said and done, you know, it was like, okay, well, we're done here. So, you know, sold, sold it all. And then now what? And in retrospect, if I was paying attention, I would have seen something with the housing market. And what do you think is happening right now? Because you mentioned earlier, you do see you know, there's a dis obvious disruption with the supply chain, with rising costs, you know, when it comes to, you know, their delays in development, renovations, all the capital expenditure projects, rising costs, even though lumber has, you know, prices have gone down a bit recently. But where do you see this is going? Because we're basically seeing, especially in a single family homes, you know, market, a lot of people are not they don't wish to sell because they see that the supply is not there. So, okay, they're going to sell the house, but what are they going to buy? Everything else has increased and there's not that many options. They're going to get stuck without a home. So people are waiting until the supply is back. That's at least my theory. But what do you think this is leading us? So just in my observation locally, you know, I think I have talked to several people and they have gone ahead and, signed up for new construction because there is no inventory and they're still going to be delayed on delivery just because of supply. 
some of the bigger home builders, and I don't know if you do this too, but they, they co-op for supplies. And so they may have, instead of just in time delivery for their supplies, they may have a warehouse that, you know, they, they co-op or they get, they sell it to another home builder. But what I'm seeing too, is, you know, a warehouse full of, you know, appliances and, you know, granite and things like that at one time was not desirable to have. And now they're grateful that they have it because they can deliver on on those supplies. I don't know how it's going to change. You know, I get up early every morning and I read a lot just about global situations. And one of my favorites is it's global 24-7 supply chain, talking about domestic production versus foreign production and then the cost of getting it here. Okay. You know, semiconductor chips are one of them. I mean, we've seen that with automobiles sitting there waiting for those to happen. So one of the things that I find encouraging is the sustainability of the equities market. You know, you would think that it would have tanked with all the things going on in the world, but it hasn't. And the other part of that too, is a relatively cheap supply of money that for people to, uh, you know, it's almost cheaper to, you know, borrow fed money than it is to, you know, do anything else. So it's a catch 22, because if your supply chain is clogged, but money's cheap, you know, it's like, I equate it to like having some money in your pocket, and you can't wait to go shopping, you know, Mm -hmm. to find that perfect pair of shoes. And you, you can't find them anywhere, but you've got money in your pocket. So it's kind of that same thing that we're looking at today. I don't know how it's going to change. Manufacturing is doing better. They just had the ISM report today. But Fed money is still cheap, and I understand that they're going to stop buying up bonds as they have been to sustain the market. So it'll be interesting to see moving into you know fourth quarter what that's going to look like for investors. One of the things that I'm a little concerned about that I watch too is the current administration wanting to increase taxes, especially corporate taxes, in the coming yeah. year. And my concern is that that's going to have a downward pressure on the equities market come November, December of people taking their capital gains while they're still there and then what to do with it. And then I think that they might use that money into real estate. That's a very good observation. Very good thought. I'm wondering if supply chain has, you know, is we need to disrupt you know, that industry, we need to improve that. And since the demand is there, the supply is not, the debt is cheap, then how do we not see more companies expand their operations, more new players in the supply chain, you know, market? That's something that I haven't, it was not able to figure out. I don't know, it takes time to open those facilities and to step in. But like you mentioned, you know, it's, it's not something that is going to be resolved right away. It's going to take, you know, a lot of time. We have a backlog every month, so it will take time to catch up. And then the other thing that I wanted to just comment on is, you know, the tax increase is going to have for sure a negative, you know, negative impact right now with a lot of em- employees wanting to work from home. I think what they don't understand, what they're missing is that employers are basically saying, okay, I have someone that actually moved to another state or I don't, we don't see them. Why do I pay, you know, taxes, health benefits and high pay where I can just fire them? And now with the higher taxes, 
Why not just fire them and hire someone who can do their job overseas for a fraction of the price? And this way I can balance out the increase in tax and save, you know, on payroll, which is one of the highest, you know, expenses that any employer can have. So I think we will definitely see that. And I think that will lead to an increase in unemployment, unfortunately. And that would also impact real estate because real estate is always in the middle of every recession. It's, People have to live yeah. someplace. They, you know, it, they've got to lay their heads someplace. One of the things when COVID started, I subscribed to obviously the local business journal and the one in Austin and Austin is an extremely hot market right now. It has mm-hmm. not suffered at all. Yeah. And I watch crane watch. And one of the things that I noticed too, is while it wasn't slowing down at all, this class A office space is sitting empty. Yeah. And what somebody still having to make the note payments on it, you know, and whether they're working remotely or whether they're in office, one of the things that I've been paying attention to also is the subject of corporate liability through this COVID situation, because nobody has volunteered to put their neck out to be the first one to demand that people come back to the office. Earlier in the summer, J.P. Morgan Chase and Morgan Stanley and Apple, I believe, were all figuring on September the 1st, which is today, that everybody would be back into the office. And then the Delta variant popped its little head up and everybody started backpedaling on that because what is that going to do to the workforce? I saw a poll the other day, 1,300 employees were polled and 36% of them said that if they had to return to the office physically, they oh, would quit. not. They would quit. Yep. Absolutely. And another, you know, another person who does, Liz Ryan is a big influencer and she's a big influencer to me. And she does what I do. And she says, why did people all of a sudden go remote last year and it was okay? And now doing the same results-oriented jobs, now they have to go back to an office where they can increase their risk of whatever. And so there's a big back and forth on that, but nobody's ponied up yet. And nobody's said, you know, this is what you're going to have to do when you come back to the office. I was talking to a CEO last summer and he had about 60,000 square feet of office space that was absolutely empty. And he was trying to figure out how to refigure the space floor plan in order to accommodate people who might have comorbidities. And so we got into the subject of the cost of glassing up offices and then, you know, breaking everything instead of a communal cubby or bullpen, if you will, that to make individual offices. And somebody made a comment about, well, you know, why does Mary get an office and I don't? Well, Mary has type two diabetes and she can't be around people for exposure. And I looked at him and I said, you just violated HIPAA all over the place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just, I equate it to the bathtub ring and the cat in the hat. Everything it touches, it, it impacts. And so I don't think that he's retrofitted that, that 60,000 square feet yet. So it, it just sits idle, unoccupied. Yeah, I wonder when, you know, office owners are going to, those who are not occupied are going to think about changing it to a different asset class, maybe convert it to to multifamily. I mean, if they cannot pay their debt at some point, they'll return it to the lender and we're going to see fire sales with probably, you know, owners of other asset classes taking it over and turning the office into, could be, you know, 
storage could be multifamily, even though it's an extensive CapEx investment. But even with multifamily, you know, we invest four, five, seven million dollars when we buy assets to improve the unit and exterior. So we may be seeing that and that's going to, it's kind of a hybrid between new construction and an existing multifamily because to build something now will take a lot more time and it's more expensive. It might be a lot cheaper to buy a vacant office space and you can get it at a discount and then just regut the interior. Don't touch the foundations, regut the interior, make it something different that has actually demand now. That's probably going to be cheaper than a grounds up you know, development. So I haven't seen a lot of those recently. I think it's still scary for some developers for some reason. It's still the unknown. One of the things I was reading about, you know, enclosed shopping malls have become dinosaurs and trying to reinvent them in their second life, if you will. Mm. And so there's one here in town too, that they wanted to really attract service industries like doctors, attorneys, things of that nature to break it up just to get some rent on the space, you know, instead of it being empty. And then office uh, medical sites. And I live in the medical center here in San Antonio. And so they're springing up everywhere, everywhere in conversions of existing buildings. Now, Austin, it has a homeless problem, like a lot of the many people, a lot of big cities. And one of the things that they did was take an old hotel and retrofit it into I think it's 500 square feet apartments and Mm. make it available for the homeless. That's wonderful. That's a very creative way of taking an asset that is no longer in its, its right use and adjusted to the new reality, to the new needs. And I think COVID is going to accelerate it. There's no way that all those offices are going to still be there empty. Something has to give, because if the lender is going to take it back, Who's going to buy an empty office space knowing that no other businesses want to rent it? They'll have to change it to something that would make sense, to something that would generate cash. It's also going to be hard for anyone to, you know, just to even raise money for it or deploy their own capital into it, knowing that no companies want to rent it. And banks aren't going to want that on their REO anyway, too. I mean, they'd much rather work it out and figure out a way to make it work that's not cost prohibitive. But then you have all the other factors that feed into it too, because of supply chain and, you know, money's cheap, but you know, what are you going to do? So I don't have, but I, I don't have a solution yet, but I am very interested. I stand on the sidelines and I watch all of these multiple variables play out to see what's going to happen next. Cause I want to be on the bow wave. You know, I want to be right behind the bow wave, getting ready to be able to see what's going on. Aren't we all? Yeah, I think it's going to be really, really interesting to see what's going to happen. Arlene, I feel like I can keep talking with you for hours because this is this is fascinating. But we have to wrap up the discussion today and we've arrived to the lightning round questions or five quick questions. The first one is about your favorite hobby. Cooking and wine. Oh, cooking and wine. Yes, you are the founder of Women and Wine on Wednesday. What is that all about? I was one of the co-founders. The original, her name is Linda Meffert, and she's out of New Orleans. And she started it in New Orleans and the coffee festival in New Orleans. Then she got married. She moved to San Antonio. And I was just in the right place at the right time. And there were four others of us that helps kick off Women and Wine. It's a networking group for women once a month 
I think it's six o'clock to 7.30 at different places. And a lot of us have experience in hospitality. So we had relationships with chef-owned restaurants and things of that nature. So it was a lot of fun. Awesome. That sounds like a lot of fun. I would definitely attend the event if I lived in San Antonio. Arlene, what's the one thing that people don't know about you? That they don't know about me? Yeah, that's probably going to be a hard question because you, you're pretty much an open book. I, I pretty much am. Most people probably don't know that one of my passions is the children's rights and what's going on in the world. You know, I live in Texas, obviously, and I grew up 10 miles from the Mexican border in an agrarian society. And there are a lot of children being trafficked. And San Antonio and Houston are two of the big, big cities for that, too. So that's probably what people don't know about me, but that's my, that's my jam. All right. What's your number one advice to high net worth individuals that want to scale and grow their real estate portfolio? Measure your knowledge base, have clear understanding and expectations throughout everything to people think, oh, I'm just going to you know, make a zillion dollars and it's all going to be you know, great. Well, you need to manage your expectations because as I know, things can get weird through no fault of your own. So to expand your knowledge base and make sure you understand everything and have a good CPA, please have a good CPA. Very, very important. And a good attorney. Okay. Those two things and a good mechanic. Okay. And those three <laughs> things, you can do anything. All right. Love that. Arlene, where can people find you? So LinkedIn, you can find me on my LinkedIn profile. It has all of my contact information on there. You know, I'm on LinkedIn all the time. It's the digital branding footprint for everybody. And if you don't have a LinkedIn profile, I'm going to encourage you to do one and make it your make it your digital footprint. All right. Awesome. Arlene, thank you so much. You're a huge inspiration and I love your story. I love how knowledgeable you are. And, you know, it's really fascinating chatting with you today. I really appreciate your time. Well, thanks so much. It was a lot of fun. I really look forward to this and I, I, it was everything I hoped for and more. <laughs> awesome. All right, guys, if you'd like to speak with me about investing in multifamily, be sure to complete our new investor forum on elliperlman.com. Until then, be bold, be great, and keep moving forward. Thank you again, Arlene. Guys, I'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.